0: Section 12 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Eminent Painters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Eminent Painters by Albert Hubbard, Ari Sheffer, Part 2. In the year 1826, we find Sheffer regularly established in the household of the Duke and Duchess of Orléans, with commissions to paint portraits of all the members of the family, and incidentally, to give lessons in drawing and mathematics to the Princess Marie. The princess had been a sore trial to her parents, in that she had failed to fit into the conventional ways of polite society. Once she had shocked all New Willy by donning man's attire, and riding horseback astride. A worthy priest who had been her tutor had found her tongue too sharp for his comfort and had resigned his post in dismay. The princess argued religion with the bishop and discussed politics with visitors in such a radical way that her father often turned pale. For the diversions of society, she had a profound contempt that did not fail to manifest itself. "'in sharp sallies against the smug hypocrisy of the times. "'She had read widely, knew history, "'was familiar with the poets, "'and had dived into the classics to a degree "'equaled by few women in France. "'So keen was her wit that, "'when pompous dignitaries dined at Neuilly, "'her father and mother perspired freely, "'not knowing what was coming next.' In her character were traits that surely did not belie her Louis Couture's ancestry. And yet, this father and mother had a certain secret pride in the accomplishments of their daughter. Parents always do. Her independence sort of kept them vibrating between ecstasies of joy and chills of fear. The princess was plain in feature but finely formed, and had attracted the favorable attention of various worthy young men. But no man had ever dared to make love to her, except by post or proxy. Several lovers had pressed their claims, making appeal through her father. But the Duke of Orléans, strong as he was, never had cared to intimate to his daughter, a suggestion as to whom she should wed. Love to her was a high and holy sacrament, and a marriage of convenience or diplomacy was to the mind of the princess immoral, and abhorrent. The father knew her views and respected them. But happiness is not a matter of intellect, and in spite of her brilliant, daring mind, the princess of Oilean was fretting her soul out against the bars of environment. She lacked employment. She longed to do, to act, to be. She had ambitions in the line of art, and believed she had talent that was worth cultivating. And so it was that Harry Sheffer, the acknowledged man of talent, was invited to New Ely. He came. He was 29 years of age. The princess was 25. The ennui of unused powers and corroding heart hunger had made the princess old before her time. Sheffer's fight with adversity had long before robbed him of his youth. These two eyed each other curiously. The gentle, mild-voiced artist knew his place and did not presume on terms of equality with the princess, who traced a direct pedigree to Louis the Great. He thought to wait and allow her gradually to show her quality. She tried a caustic wit upon him, and he looked at her out of mild blue eyes and made no reply. He had no intention of competing with her on her own reserve, and he had a pride in his profession that equaled her pride of birth. He looked at her, just looked at her in silence, and this spoiled child, before whom all others quailed, turned scarlet, stammered, and made apology. In good sooth, she had played tears and thrust with every man she had met, and had come off without a scar. But he was a man of pride and poise and yet far beneath her in a social way and he had rebuked her haughty spirit by a simple look. A London lawyer had recently put in a defense for wife beating on the grounds that there are women who should be chastised for their own good. I do not go quite this far but from the time Sheffer rebuked the Princess of Orleans by refusing to reply to her saucy tongue There was a perfect understanding between them. The young woman listened respectfully if he spoke, and when he painted, followed his work with eager eyes. At last, she had met one who was not intent on truckling for place and pelf. His ideals were as high and excellent as her own, his mind more sincere. Life was more to him than to her, because he was working his energies up into art, and she was only allowing her powers to rust. She followed him dumbly, devotedly. He wished to treat her as an honored pupil and with the deference that was her due, but she insisted that they should study and work as equals. Instead of giving the young woman lessons to learn, they studied together. Her task as pupil was to read to him two hours daily as he worked, and things she did not fully understand, he explained. The princess made small progress as a painter, probably because her teacher was so much beyond her that she was discouraged at thought of equaling him, and feeling that in so many other ways they were equals, she lost heart in trying to follow him in this. At length, weary of attempts at indifferent drawing, the princess begged her tutor to suggest some occupation for her where they could start afresh and work out problems together. Sheffers suggested modeling in clay, and the subject was taken up with avidity. The princess developed a regular passion for the work, and group after group was done. Among other figures she attempted was an equestrian statue of Joan of Arc. This work was cast in bronze, and now occupies an honored place at Versailles. So thoroughly did the young woman enter into the spirit of sculpture that she soon surpassed Sheffer in this particular line. But to him, she gave all credit. Her success was a delight to her parents, who saw with relief that the carping spirit of cynicism was gone from her mind, and instead had come a kindly graciousness that won all hearts. In the ability to think and act with independence, there was something decidedly masculine in the spirit of the Princess Marie, And, as I have shown, Sheffer possessed a sympathy and gentleness that was essentially feminine, which is quite a different thing from being effeminate. These two souls complemented each other, and their thoughts being fixed on similar ideals, how can we wonder that a very firm affection blossomed into being? But the secret of their love has never been written, and base would be the pen that would attempt to picture it in detail. Take off thy shoes, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. The duke and duchess admired Sheffer, but never quite forgot that he was in their employ, and all their attempts to treat him as an equal revealed the effort. It was as though they had said, You are lowly bred, and work with your hands, and receive a weekly wage, but these things are nothing to us. We will not think less of you, for see, do we not invite you to our board? The aristocracy of birth is very seldom willing to acknowledge the aristocracy of brain. And the man of brains, if lowly born, has a mild indifference, at least, for all the guilt and god of royalty. The Prince of Wales does not recognize the nobility of Israel Sanguil. Well. And Israel Zangwill asked in bored indifference, "'Who? Who is this man you call H.R.H.? "'But love is greater than man-made titles, "'and when was there ever a difference in station "'able to separate hearts that throbbed only for each other?' "'Possibly even the stern old Duke might have relented, "'and given his blessing, were it not that events of mighty importance "'came seething across the face of France.' and duties to his country outweighed the duties to his daughter. On the 30th day of July, 1830, Harry Sheffer was at the house of his mother in Paris. A hurried knock came at the door, and Harry answered it in person. There on the threshold stood Monsieur Tears. Oh, Sheffer, it is you, how fortunate. You are a member of the household of Orléans, and I have a most important message for the duke. You must go with me and deliver it to him. I see, said Sheffer. The convention has named the Duke as King of France, and we are to notify him. Exactly so, said Tears. Horses were at the door, they mounted and rode away. The streets were barricaded, so carriages were out of the question. But Sheffer and Tears leaped the barricades, and after several minor mishaps, found themselves safely out of Paris. The call was not entirely unexpected on the part of the duke. Sheffer addressed him as Le Roi, and this told all. The duke hesitated, but finally decided to accept the mission, fraught with such mighty import. He started in disguise for Paris that night on foot. At the back entrance of the Palais Royal stood Aris Sheffer, and now Louis-Philippe, mingle with the crowd unrecognized, then pass into the palace, this palace that was his birthplace. The next day Louis appeared with Lafayette on a balcony at the Hotel de Ville, and these two embraced each other in sight of the multitude. It is not for me to write a history of those troublous times, but suffice it to say that the Citizen King, ruled France probably as well as any other man could have done. His task was a most difficult one, for he had to be both king and citizen, to please royalist and populist alike. This sudden turn of the political kaleidoscope was a pivotal point in the life of Aris Sheffer. So long as the Duke of Orleans was a simple country gentleman, Sheffer was the intimate friend of the family. But how could the king of France admit into his family circle a mere low-born painter? Certainly not they, who are descended from kings. Orders were issued by the government to Sheffer to paint certain pictures, and vouchers reached him from official sources. But he was made to understand that friendship with the household of a king was not for him. Possibly he had been too much mixed up with the people in a political way. The favor of the populace is a thing monarchs jealously note, as mariners on a shore watch the wind. The father of Louis Philippe was descended from a brother of Louis the Great, while on his mother's side, he was a direct descendant of the great monarch and Madame de Montespan. Such an inbred claim to royalty was something of which to boast but at the same time Louis-Philippe was painfully sensitive as to the blot on the scutcheon. The Princess Marie knew the slender tenure by which her father held his place, and although her heart was wrung by the separation from her lover, she was loyal to duty as she saw it, and made no sign that might embarrass the Citizen King. Arnold and Henri Sheffer were each married and working out careers. Harry and his mother lived together "'loving and devoted, and into the keeping of this mother "'had come a grandchild, a beautiful girl-baby. "'They called her name Connelly. "'About the mother of Connelly, the grandmother was not curious. "'It was enough to know that the child was the child of her son, "'and upon the babe she lavished all the loving tenderness "'of her great, welling mother-heart.' She had no words but those of gentleness and love, for the son that had brought her this charge to her. And did she guess that this child would be the sustaining prop for her son when she herself was gone? All this time, the poor Princess Marie was practically a prisoner in the Great Palace, wearing out her heart, a slave to what she considered duty. She grew ill, and all efforts of her physicians to arouse her from her melancholy were in vain. Her death was a severe shock to poor Shuffer. For some months, friends feared for his sanity, for he would only busy his brush with scenes from Faust or religious subjects that bordered on morbidity. Again and again he painted Marguerite in Prison, Marguerite Waiting, Marguerite in Paradise, and Mignon. Into all of his work he infused that depth of tenderness which has given the critics their cue for accusing him of sentimentality gone mad. And in fact, no one can look upon any of the works of Sheffer, done after 1830, without being profoundly impressed with the brooding sadness that covers all as with a garment. From the time he met the Princess of Orléans, there came a decided evolution in his art, But it was not until she had passed away that one could pick out an unsigned canvas and say positively, This is Sheffer's. In all his work, you see that look of soul, and in his best, you behold a use of the blue background that rivals the blue of heaven. No other painter that I can recall has gotten such effects from colors so simple. But Sheffer's life was not all sadness, But even when the little mother had passed away, Sheffer wrote calmly to his friend, Auguste Thierry. I yet have my daughter calmly, and were it not for her, I fear my work would be a thing of the past. But with her, I still feel that God exists. My life is filled with love and light. It was a curious circumstance that Sheffer, who conducted the citizen king to Paris, was to lead him away. Sheffield was a captain in the National Guard, and when the stormy times of 1848 came, he put away his brushes, locked his studio, and joined his regiment. Louis-Philippe had begun as a citizen, one of the people, and following the usual course had developed into a monarch with a monarch's indifference to the good of the individual. The people clamored for a republic, and agitation soon developed into revolution. On the morning of the 24th of February, 1848, Sheffer met the son of Lafayette, who was also an officer in the National Guard. How curious, said Lafayette, that we should be protecting a king for whom we have so little respect. Still, we do our duty, answered Sheffer. They made their way to the Tuileries and posted themselves on the terrace between the windows of the king's private apartments. As they sat on the steps in the wan light of breaking day, Sheffer heard someone softly calling his name. He listened, and the call was repeated. Who wants me, answered Sheffer. Tis I, the queen, came to answer. Sheffer looked up, and at the lattice of the window saw the white face of the woman he had known so well and intimately for a full score of years. The terror of the occasion did away with all courtly etiquette. "'Who is with you?' asked the queen. "'Only Lafayette,' was the answer. "'Come in at once, both of you. "'The king has abdicated, and you must conduct us to a place of safety.' Sheffer and his companion ran up the steps. The queen unbolted the door with her own hands, and they entered. Inside the hallway, they found Louis-Philippe dressed as for a journey, with no sign of kingly trappings. With them were their sons and several grandchildren.' They filed out of the palace, through the garden, and into the Place de la Concorde, a spot of ghastly memories. The king looked about nervously. Some of the mob recognized him. Sheffield concluded that a bold way was the best, and stepping ahead of Louis-Philippe, called in a voice of authority, Make way! Make way for the king! The crowd parted dumb with incredulity at the strange sight. By the fountain in the square stood a public carriage, and into the shabby vehicle of the night the royal passengers were packed. Dumas, who had followed the procession, mounted the box. Sheffer gave a quick whispered order to the driver, closed the door with a slam, lifted his hat, and the vehicle rumbled away toward the quay. When Sheffer got back to the Tuileries, the mob had broken in the iron gates at the front of the gardens, and was surging through the palace in wild disorder. Sheffer hastened home to tell Carmelie the news of the night. When the little mother died, a daughter of Henri Sheffer came to join the household of Ari Sheffer. The name of this niece was also Carmelie. The fact of they being two young women in the house by one name has led to confusion among the biographers. And thus it happens that at least four encyclopedias record that Ernest Renan married the daughter of Aris Sheffer. Renan married the niece, and the fact that they named their first child Ary helped, possibly, to confirm the error of the biographers. Sheffer's life was devoted to providing for and educating these young women. He himself gave them lessons in the languages, in music, painting, and sculpture, the daughter was a handsome girl and in point of intellect kept her artist father very busy to keep one lesson in advance. Together they painted and modeled in clay and the happiness that came to Sheffer as he saw her powers unfold was the sweetest experience he had ever known. The coldness between himself and the king had increased but Louis Philippe did not forget him but commissions came one after another for work to cover the walls of the palace at Versailles. With the queen, his relations were friendly, even intimate. Several times she came to his house. Her interest in comely was tender and strong, and when Sheffa painted a mignon and took comely for a model, the queen insisted on having the picture and paying her own price, a figure quite beyond what the artist asked. This picture which represents so vividly the profound pathos and depth of soul which Ari Sheffer could put upon a canvas, can now be seen in the Louvre. But the best collection of Sheffer's portraits and historical pictures is at Versailles. In the gentle companionship of his beloved daughter, Sheffer found the mead of joy that was his due. With her he lived over the days that had gone forever and those other days that might have been. And when the inevitable came, and this daughter loved a worthy and suitable young man, Sheffer bowed his head, and fighting hard to keep back the tears, gave the pair his blessing. The marriage of Dr. Marjolin and Kamali Sheffer was a happy mating, and both honored the gifted father and ministered to him in every kindly way. But so susceptible was Sheffer's nature that when his daughter had given her whole heart to another, The fine edge of his art was dulled and blunted. He painted through habit, and the work had merit, but only at rare intervals was there in it that undefinable something which all can recognize, but none analyze, that stamps the product as great art. When, in the year 1850, Sheffer married, it was the death of his art. The artist does business on a very small margin of inspiration, Do you understand me? The man of genius is not a genius all the time. Usually he is only a very ordinary individual. There may be days or weeks that are fallow, and sometimes even years that are years of famine. He cannot conquer the mood of depression that is holding him to earth. But some days the clouds suddenly clear away, the sun bursts out, and the soul of the man is alive with divine fervor. Sublime thoughts crowd upon him, great waves of emotion sweep over his soul, and as Webster said of his hanged speech, the air was full of reasons, and all I had to do was to reach up and seize them. All great music and all deathless poems are written in a fever of ecstasy. All paintings that move men to tears are painted in tears. But it is easy to break in upon the sublime mood and drag the genius back to earth. Certain country cousins who occasionally visited the family of Ralph Waldo Emerson cut all mental work off short. The philosopher laid down his pen when the cousins came a-cousining and literally took to the woods. An uncongenial caller would instantly unhorse Carlyle, and Tennyson had a hatred of all lion hunters— not merely because they were lion hunters, but because they broke in upon his paradise and snapped the thread of inspiration. Mrs. Grote tells us that Sheffer's wife was intelligent and devoted. In fact, she was too devoted. She would bring her sewing and watch the artist at his work. If the great man grew oblivious of her presence, she gently chided him for it. She was jealous of his brother's, Jealous of his daughter, even jealous of his art. She insisted not only that he should love her, but demanded that he should love nothing else. And yet all the time she was putting forth violent efforts to make him happy. As a result, she put him in a mood where he loved nothing and nobody. She clipped his wings. And instead of a soaring genius, we find a whimsical, commonplace man with occupation gone. Wives demand the society of their husbands as their lawful right, and I suppose it is expecting too much to suppose that any woman, short of a saint, could fit into the bachelor ways of a dreamer of dreams, aged 55. Before he met the widow of General Beaudrad, Sheffer was happy with the sweet sad happiness in the memories of the love of his youth, the love that was lost, and being lost, still lived and filled his heart. But the society of the widow was agreeable, her conversation vivacious. He decided that this being so, it might be better still to have her by him all the time. And this is what the lady desired, for it was she who did the courting. Oliver went to Holmes when said, because I like an occasional pinch of salt, is no reason why you should immerse me in brine. But Aris Sheffer, the mild, gentle, and guileless, did not reason quite so far. The vivacious Sophie took him captive, and he was shorn of his strength. And no doubt, the ex-widow was as much disappointed as he. There really was no good reason why he should not paint better than ever, when here he wouldn't work at all. Locks a daisy. His spirit beat itself out against the bars. Health declined. And although he occasionally made groggy efforts to shake himself back into form, his heart was not in his work. Seven years went dragging by, and one morning there came word from London that the Duchess of Orléans, the mother of the beloved Marie, was dying. Sheffer was ill, but he braced himself for the effort and hastily started away alone, leaving a note for calmly. He arrived in England in time to attend the funeral of his lifelong friend, and then he himself was seized with a deadly illness. His daughter was sent for, and when she came, the sick man's longing desire was to get back to France. If he was to die, he wanted to die at home. To die at home at last is the prayer of every wanderer. Arisheffer's prayer was answered. He expired in the arms of of his beloved daughter on June 15, 1858, aged 63 years. End of Section 12